Welcome along to the Cardi Fans Lifestyle Podcast. I'm Nick, and this week we speak to the man behind the music of Marbella, Colin Francis. A man who started his career working with none other than Simon Cowell, before going on to DJ for P. Diddy, take song requests from Prince Harry, tour with 50 Cent, and somehow managing to collect nine consecutive number one albums along the way. As a little warning in advance, you will never hear someone talk with as much passion about music and DJing as you are about to. This is the journey of the true and nice guy of nightlife, Mr. Colin Francis. Colin, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure, Nick. Thank you for having me. A true nightlife legend, really. <laughs> oh man! I've been I feel I should sing. I should sing the jingle or something, but I think that will save. We'll save up ourselves that for both. But don't know what's that. Brilliant! You oh, must man. get that all the time. All the time. All the time. Yeah, it's um, it's quite quite funny sometimes when you sort of either walking down the street or you walk into like a, a bar or whatever, and then people start singing. You think, oh my. This is this is flattering, but so damn embarrassing, man. <laughs> yeah, but um, nah. So 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 good to know that people obviously, you know, even acknowledge what it is what you do. So uh, I'm grateful. So take us back to the start at the very very start. What was your first kind of experience, DJ? Okay, well, growing up, I used to um, I used to always be around my uncles who had huge record collection and I used to go around there after school and I used to love the smell of the vinyl, smell of the sleeves. I'm a real nerd when it comes to music. I would be the guy which would be looking at the back sleeve and looking to see who produced it, who wrote it, who played the bass, who played the percussion, who played the keys who played the drums I was like a, a full on nerd like that is one thing which not a lot of people really know about me but trust me I'm I'm a DJ but I'm a full on geek like I'm just so I um I used to go into my uncle's house after school and listen to all these sort of music from funk R&B house so I never was just listening to one genre of music he used to have one deck which was direct drive and one deck which was belt drive with obviously I'm going to pretend I know what that is but I have absolutely right, okay, I was no gonna idea say, right, <laughs> right okay so this is what I'm saying so I'm going to break it down to so one deck was your equivalent of a BMX which has just got one chain yeah. and it just goes at one speed okay which is as fast as yeah and then the other deck was the sickest mountain bike what you can get, which is a Technics deck, which has got so many different gears, so many different right. this and whatever. So that was what the professional DJs were doing. But anyway, they were mad expensive. So my, only, my uncle only had one of those. So what I used to do, I used to put one song on the BMX deck. 
so to yeah. speak, if we're going to use it that. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then I'll use the other deck to try and attempt to mix it in because it had a pitch control which I could, you know, obviously mess around with to try and get it in time. So that was my first first experience of actually playing around with decks, and I used to just I used to love the fact of putting two songs together and almost making a third in terms of the energy, the ambience, everything. And that, that mix and that time when you're in the mix, it's, uh, it was just so euphoric for me. Like I was like, wow, this is, you can actually feel like you're producing, but you're producing your own sound by putting two different songs together. As I say, I was just messing around. Trust me, I knew by the time I got in from school, I had from 4.30 until around 6 o'clock when he got in from work to do what I had to do. Because (laughs) trust me, if he knew that I was on his decks and they know, I used to have to do a little trick where I used to pull out the single next to it, almost like a card trick. I used to pull out the single what was next to the one which I was actually using. So I remembered exactly where to put it back. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. If he finds out that I've been messing with his records, I'm in big trouble. I then ended up sort of mixing with um, one of my friends back then, a guy called Joe Long. Joe used to have a set of decks at his house. So then we started going around to Joe's house and um, started putting like little mix cassette tapes together. We put them together and then take them into school and you know just give them out and some people was like this actually is all right it's quite good i mean when i listen back to them now they were horrendous like (laughs) horrendous but i suppose it was just a novelty of the fact that one of your friends is inverted commas a dj so you you know my mates are just hype of the fact of colin's got a scene colin's got a mixtape like yeah 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 so anyway we Used to give them out free at school. And then, um, you know what it was? It wasn't even so much a fact of I knew I was kind of good at it, but I just knew I had a passion for it. That's what I knew. Yeah. I wouldn't say I was great, but I had a passion. And I just knew I loved it more than the average. And and that is what kind of took me first and foremost was just the, the, the passion. And still now, really, I mean, you know, that's, that's my driving force at all times is the passion. So how did you end up maybe getting like your first gig? You know what? Like we've done, my uncle used to do a sort of like little party get together. We shouldn't really have been in there, but you know, I put on my, my, um, my, I think I just about could grow a tash. So I was able <laughs> to get into, um, get into the, get into the venue. So anyway, we used to start off doing little things like that. Um, and it was just more sort of, family and friends and then the first proper gig what we had so where did it where did it go from there so you've said you've done the first gig and at what point did it become maybe like a bit more regular or you were doing things weekly and stuff like that weekly residency so to speak came about from uh there was a guy called trevor nelson who i'm sure many would know and another guy called ronnie harrell and they um started a weekly event called cat club and they asked if we'd like to have a weekly residency there and it was just like wow how can how can we not do that 
And just to be around that company of that magnitude on a weekly basis, he was learning from the best, so yeah. to speak. And the thing is with the likes of someone like Trevor is that he was always highly respected, but his actual selection was just second to none. The way he would read a crowd, and that to me is the key to any DJ. It's like it's great if you technically you could do certain things, but if you can read a crowd and still do certain things on the decks as well, then you're hundred percent you're winning. All I knew is that I wanted to play music what evoked a feeling. Do you know what I love, Colin? You can t- you yeah. can hear how passionate you are about yeah. this. It's like tangible. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So you know, it was um, so for me. He was the the DJ, which really, when I knew that he was going to be the special guest that week at the club, like that's when I knew I was just on super nerd mode, and I was just watching, like you know, like the 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 apprentice and the master. That's it. So. I wouldn't even be watching what's going on with the crowd. I was just watching his hands, watching his timing for him pulling out the songs, putting them onto the next deck. You know, like how a footballer would, a young footballer looking at a a real pro footballer, he's looking at the timing of how much space he makes for himself when he receives the ball, how quickly he's looking to do the next move. That's how I was when I was watching him DJ. Anyway... I got I, I digress slightly. <laughs> so Colin, um, I, lo- I love it because you can hear it in your voice how much <laughs> it means to you. Oh man, yeah, yeah. So it was, um, you know. So that was that was, I suppose, the real beginning of me actually thinking I would love for this to be my actual career. You know, I would love for it to be, but. It still wasn't a thing in my head at that point. Do you know what I mean? It still wasn't a reality for me then. So what what point did it become, hold on, I actually could do this as a career? Well, first and foremost, I have to say is that, you know, like my mum and dad was very adamant at first that I have to get a degree and I have to go university. Like, right. it was like, you need a fallback plan. We're supportive. We love the fact that you love your music and we can we can tell you love your music or whatever, but Cole, I'm not sure whether that's going to put, you know, food on the table and I can't be subsidizing your money for <laughs> forever and a day. Yeah. So we're going to do it for your university times, but we're actually hoping that when you finish university, you're actually going to get a proper job because even at that time, um, when I was at university studying, I had a couple of jobs. So I worked in a record shop um, just to, again, more so the fact that I could get records for cheap, which was obviously they were expensive then. You was able to meet DJs. You was able to hear all the upfront music. And then I also done another thing, which was I went and applied for a job within a record label, which at the time was BMG. And there was um, a guy there called DJ Swing, 
basically he gave me a job at BMG in the club promotions department. So I was like basically his, his wingman. I said to him, I didn't want any money. And whether they paid me or not, I didn't care. I just wanted the experience of just being in that music industry environment. So I used to travel all the way from Romford to Putney Bridge, which took me about the best part of nearly two hours on my days off at university. And I would go basically just send records out to all the DJs. But what it allowed me to do was start being able to converse with your top tier DJs and you start understanding who's your tastemakers. You start understanding who's your main club DJs. You start understanding who's the main radio DJs. And then what you're doing then is you're starting to get a rapport because you're the guy which they need, so to speak, because they want to get their records and their promos up front. So I worked there. And the ironic thing is our big boss was none other than Simon Cowell. Really? Yeah. He was the big boss. He was the guy that when we walk into the office, so our room was kind of cool, you know, like we've done our thing. Simon's office was about five of ours. He had the thickest office. And every time you look, you just see and you just think, wow, like, that's the guy. So it was him. What was he then, like? That's that point. Yeah. You know what? Simon obviously has that reputation on TV as being the nasty guy that this or whatever, but I can genuinely say, just like most people what would speak about him now, like off camera, he was always the nicest guy ever. Yeah. You know? Take make time for people. Just genuinely just a nice guy. But if you do your work and you do what you're supposed to do and you do the re- bring out the results what you're supposed to bring out, there's no problem. But if yeah. you don't then just like you tell me, you see him on TV. I don't really have, he didn't have much tolerance or time for that. You know, he, he led by example. He wanted perfection. So that's what he set out for. And that's what he's, he claimed for himself, you know. So that's what we've done. So, um, you know, we, we worked under him. And then there was another guy which was in our office. He was a guy called Danny D, which went on to become the person which put together a production group from sweden called stargate yeah 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 okay so stargate they produce for the likes of beyonce uh neo all these kind of things um so danny was the other guy in our office this was just like my real grassroots of learning what an education yeah yeah so just learning the music business so then moving on from that Obviously, as I say, I'm still at university. I'm working in the record shop. And um, I was just thinking, wow, like, you know when you can just feel you're you're in the presence of greatness? And, yeah, and just the work ethic was just second to none. And that's what really gave me my my grounding then was just seeing this around me. And then it, it becomes second nature. And then when it becomes second nature, then all of a sudden when you do start doing your own thing, you start taking on that same work ethic and you start applying the things what you learnt then in your own business. But yes, let's let's um let's move it on slightly from right. like from where as I say, you know, I had the fallback plan and then I just obviously started, you know, DJing a bit more and a bit more and 
And then it started becoming something which I actually thought to myself, this could be something. And was there a point where that happened? Or did that just kind of happen over time where you had this education around all these like amazing mentors and you kind okay. of just developed it? There was a point. So I was um, still doing it as a part-time thing. And then the same said DJ Swing said to me, I'm working in the West End right now with an organisation called Scintillate. Why don't you think about doing a gig and getting on their books and look at it as a proper job, do you know what I mean? And just start DJing. So I was working seven days a week. Um, and when you start putting it, and like I can say, you start putting these bite-sized bits of money together, all of a sudden you start realising, okay, I can actually just do this and do nothing else. So where did it go from there? You've done these things with Scintillate and you're starting to do more yeah. regular work. When did it maybe uh -huh. snowball a bit? Okay, so then I was then the, the first London DJ to have a residency. I used to fly every... It was like a, a rat race in London. Every single big DJ was all in the West End. And I said, the only way that I'm going to really be able to make a name for myself is to break the mould and to come out of that lane, which I saw was being congested, and do something different. So then I became the first DJ in London to have a residency in Ireland. Really? I used to fly every single Saturday. Yeah, I used to fly every single Saturday to a place called Derry. Yeah. And I used to DJ there and come fly back on the Sunday. And I used so to do left that field, season. isn't it, almost? Oh, massively, massively. So then for them, it was cool because they had, a, you know, they had like a, a London DJ coming out. So yeah. it's like them having a guest every single week, so to speak. But then what would happen is every now and again, don't forget I'm the resident now, but I'm still flying in every week. Yeah. But every now and again, on the big weekends, they would fly out someone like Trevor Nelson. But... I remember Trevor saying, man, saying to me, fit me, like, you're like me out here. <laughs> like, and <laughs> him sort of like being like so shocked as to what I was doing out there and how the people were receiving me out there. And then in my mind, Nick, I said to myself, well, if I can do this in a territory where nobody knew about me at first and whatever, if I can replicate this in as many other cities, I can win. So then I started then getting bookings as a guest in London. <laughs> so it's come back so, the other way. Correct. It came back round the other way. And then 2004 was the first time that I then went out in Marbella. So were you the first DJ who really kind of made Marbella your own, do you think? Million percent. Million percent. So talk me through that journey in Marbella and how that kind of grew and kind of changed over the years. Because you were there in, what, 2004. That's early for Marbella. Yeah, very early. And it was, it was building and building and building every year. And with Marbella, what it allowed me to do was, if you wasn't able to travel all over the UK, when you went to Marbella, the UK came to you. Yeah, so, get it. So, you know, you was... DJing to people from Newcastle, DJing to people from Manchester, DJing to people from Birmingham, DJing to people from London, you know, DJing to people from Torquay or whatever. Everybody 
was coming to my bow on holiday and you was hitting everybody at the same time. And then what happens then is that when they leave from my bow, they go back home and then they're talking your name. I can't speak to you and not ask you about this jingle, this Colin Francis thing that is just on <laughs> everywhere. When did this come about and like how did it start? And like talk me through this. Okay, okay. So the jingle now. The jingle was something which... I was never a DJ, which was a guy which would jump on the microphone and do this. And I was never that guy. You know, I just, I just knew I love music and, you know, I'm just a geek behind the decks. That's it. But when you've got so many different DJs playing, I need something which lets people know and differentiates between me and the next DJ. So when I come on, people know he's coming on. So there was a track by Apples called Seagalizer, which I used to play all the time. And, and not a lot of other DJs used to play that one. They used to play another track we used to do. But I used to love that track. I used to love it so much. Why the hell I started doing it, I don't know. But I kind of started humming my, my name to the song. <laughs> like, yeah, it's weird. So I had a friend of mine called Mikey J, who produced for the likes of Kano, Estelle, Big Sean. Like, but a good friend of mine from Random Manor. So, um, Mikey could, even though he produced, he had a bit of a voice on him. So I just said to him, Mikey, listen, this is the idea I've got in my head. Just do me a favor. It's like, and he's like, right. Okay. I said, but Mikey, I've got to ask you a favor. I said, I'm about to do this mix CD. I need it back in about the next 15 minutes, bro. Because... <laughs> Like, I've got to get it. He's like, oh, Carl, I'm working on this. I'm working on All right, all right, all right. Send it over quickly. I'll, I'll just quickly do something for you. Let me know if it's all right. All right, cool. Send it over to him. Within 10, 15 minutes, he's just sent me back this thing. He's like, is that all right? Right at the beginning of it, you hear him and the ad-libs. I've had to cut it out since, but... I think he, he, I don't know what he was saying. He was chatting some nonsense. I don't know whether he was on the phone <laughs> or whether he was talking to somebody else. But there was these mad ad-libs at the big beginning of it. I thought, what the hell is he doing to my thing, man? He's, he's messing up my dub. So anyway, he does these mad ad-libs and then he comes in and he drops the Colin Francis DEJ cut. And I was like, wow. Yeah, he's actually, and he layered it like he'd done, like he was doing a full set on it. Like he layered it in a way where I thought, wow, like this actually sounds decent. So um, anyway, just done the, put it on the beginning of the, of the first mix. And the actual first mix has got all the ad libs, what he had at the beginning, because I was so, I, I was so eager just to put it out there. It's got all the ad libs. And if I could find that now, I swear you'd kill yourself. I don't know what nonsense he was talking about, whether it was, talking about what he was eating for dinner or what, I don't know, but it was some crazy ad-libs. So, anyway, he's, um, he sent it back, I've done it, and then I started then using it out when I'm DJing as well, and then it just started catching on. As soon as people start hearing the drums, it's almost like a, it's like a calling. It's like, it's time, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, then it just started picking up and, yeah, and that's that's kind of like the the story. I haven't I haven't told many people that story to be fair. So, yeah, that's a bit of an exclusive there, man. Talk Big to up me, Mikey J. Talk to me about that feeling the first time when people started singing it back to you. 
Oh, you know what? I there's there's one particular time when I really when it really sunk into me, and I was doing a pool party. One of our first pool parties when we started then moving on, and then we started doing our own parties. This is when I came away and started doing our own parties with myself, Jay Funk, Mark Wright, and Jack Tweed at um, CISU. We started yeah. doing unique parties. Yeah. yeah. So we had Marbella Sessions 2013. Mark had just hit it big time with Towie and we was filming the pool party what was later to get shown in Towie and I had all my friends was there footballer pals and that they just finished their season and I remember playing it and as soon as the drum started kicking in people started screaming shouting and then when the actual jingle bit came in I dropped out the sound and everybody was singing it. And that was probably one of the most vivid memories that I have of when I am when I thought, Mum, I think I've made it. Colin, I've almost got goosebumps listening to it because I can see it in my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, it was unreal. Because Marbella just exploded at that point, didn't it, really, when it tied at in with... At that point, at that point it did. And... Um, as I say, Mark just started hitting with Towie and then I had the album with the Marbella Sessions. Then all of a sudden, just Mark just blew up into this crazy reality star. And, um, and yeah, then like the album just, we combined it with the Towie thing as well. So we had the TV commercials going out through that. We'd done a pool party, which then was in the Towie program. And then subsequently, Ministry of Sound then won marketing award for the best marketing strategy, which was all my idea at that time <laughs> for um for combining obviously the album with a reality TV program because at, at that time it was unheard of. <laughs> Tell me how this Ministry of Sound album came out because you almost just brushed over it there that it was like it was something happened, but let's be honest, Colin, that is a massive, massive thing. Yeah, the the album. Okay. So in terms of doing mixes, since 2004 when I was going to Marbella, I would always, I would always make CDs up, Nick, and just give them away when I'll be on the result and when I'll be there. I suppose you're promoting yourself. But for two, it's something that people could take away with them and hold as their memorabilia of that holiday or that year. Play it in so, the car and all that kind of thing. Play it in the car when they get back. You know, when you're back at home and the weather's not the best and or you're driving into work, which you don't really want to be doing, but then you could put them that CD on. And for that amount of time, for that hour, it will take you straight back to there and you start smiling to yourself, you get in that good mood. Or Saturday night, you're getting ready to go out with the girls or whatever the case is. And then you bang that CD in and then you start using it when you're getting ready to go out and da 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 da, da. Like, then it started becoming a thing. So then I was always giving out free CDs. And it even got to the point of where, when I come back home, Nick, is that people would then start emailing me and saying, oh, listen, my friend had this CD. Do you reckon you could send me it out? Like, it's really good. Da, da, da. Can you send me a copy? So then I just started sending out CDs for free. Again, Nick, I think I was just honoured at the fact that people wanted to actually hear my mix i didn't care so i'll go and 
never second class. You can ask anybody what's ever got a CD <laughs> for me. Never said. I always went out and bought first class stamps, Nick. And like, if you said to me, "Come and buy it," literally, as long as you get me before five p.m., guaranteed you're going to have it with you by the next day. You know, and if you hit me up after five p.m. when the post postman's just gone, you'll definitely get it the day after. <laughs> that's how. That's how it was. But again, all that stems from when I was at BMG. You, know, you, were the, so, you were the Amazon Prime of music delivery, weren't you? Early I was doors. The Amazon Prime of <laughs> DJ CDs, million percent. I, you know what? Exactly that. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, Nick. So, audio-wise, I knew what I was going to be able to do. Obviously, Mark's one of my good friends, so I knew for a voiceover for the advert that we can get Mark. Um, what was that like, seeing the advert on TV for the first time? I mean, even I remember oh. seeing it and just thinking, bloody hell, they've got an advert on TV. Yeah, yeah. It was, um, honestly, it was unbelievable. But it was as unbelievable as it was as a youngster always going in and buying records in the likes of HMV and just thinking to myself, one day I would love to be able to see my name on one of them tags. What was it like when you, you know? saw it on the shelf the first time? Oh, listen, a feeling which I could never, ever top and I could never ever really put into words like to walk into the HMV and see your album at the front of the shop with posters, banners and it being new release then the following week when you go there it actually saying number one and it's on the top shelf of everything. I remember bringing my mum to the HMV store and she just not believing what she was seeing and I went in there and mum being your mum I've gone up and I've bought a couple of the CDs as you, as you do um, yeah. and I've, I say a couple I bought about 20 yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> I've gone I'm, so obviously the, the guys look at me like what's this weirdo buying 20 of the same album for and then mum pipes up and she's like that's his CD you know that's his CD my son done that CD <laughs> like Cole Show him, just putting the, my name on the CD or whatever. He's, he's gone, no way. And yeah, anyway, I ended up, all the staff came out and I ended up, 10 of the CDs what I'd gone and bought, I'm, I bought 20, about 10 of the CDs what I bought, I ended up having to sign them and give them back to the actual staff themselves. But at least it you was, didn't have uh, to send them in the post. At least I did. <laughs> Absolutely. They cost me some, they saved me some postage. So yeah, doing that, and I had the concept as to how we can put it together with the album, the advert, the audio of the advert. And then collectively, we decided as to how we can sell Marbella. Because before that, the record labels, they only used to see Ibiza as a selling point. They never, ever even thought about um, Marbella as somewhere to be able to think of as doing an album for it wasn't even a thing yeah so we we came up with the with the name we came up with the concept we came up with as i say the tv commercial with the track listing obviously with the mix so it was almost like a turnkey project which we basically presented them and, and put in front of them and then you know they was like well you know what yep we love the idea um we'll go for it we'll take a punt sod it we'll go for it and they was like, well, listen, if we do 25,000 in its entire shelf life, happy days. 
first weekend, we'd done about 40,000 sales and we managed to knock off who at the time was unstoppable. We managed to knock Disclosure off the number one spot and Daft Punk, who obviously had Get Lucky with Pharrell and had that album out at the time. We managed to knock those two albums off to get the number one spot in the UK and that was the craziest feeling. Did you ever expect it to be as successful as it was? No, no. We were confident. We were confident that it would do well. Nobody expected it to turn man and, and do and do them kind of numbers. No one. We ended up doing, I think, over a quarter of a million sales on that that album alone. You know. Tell me about how all these kind of like. At what point did you become kind of the DJ of the celebrities, if that's the right term? Because kind of there was yeah, a point like, where suppose, any celebrity party, it was a given that yeah. you'd be there and DJ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that kind of that kind of. Um, it came from just general popularity in like the scene and when obviously because of the kind of nightclubs what I was doing and because of the kind of scene what I was in, it was always of that more high end, some call that yeah. bougie kind of crowd, which which obviously now is a given for us now. Do you know what I mean? Like we're lucky that we are pioneers in that in that field, so to speak. So, you know, like with the candy pants brand now is that like, you know, it's all over the world in, you know, in your, your Vegas, your Dubai's, your Marbella's, your Ibiza's like, so when you're around that kind of crowd, you're going to be around top end individuals or whatever the case is. They're coming, they're coming yeah. to your parties because your parties are the ones what attracts the best people. So, when you then have got the parties that attract the best people and then you're playing the music everybody's getting hyped to, nine times out of ten, they want to then hire you to come and play at their parties. Is there one that stands out for you now that you look back and think, the fact that I did that is mental? Well, listen, there's, there's a few artists which I've had the pleasure of doing parties for and they've been memorable Pharrell Williams Mariah Carey Drake Diddy Diddy is just probably in terms of throwing a party I don't think I've seen anybody throw a party like tell me about this tell us like this this guy like you know we've done a party in in London secret location like invite only but you can imagine the celebrities what were queuing just to get on the guest list alone yeah of that party was ridiculous like ridiculous um i remember seeing like kira knightley at the party and like Naomi Campbell and Kate Moss and, you know, like just um, crazy. But then another time when I'd done like Pharrell's party, like William and Harry was there. What? Yeah. And then like Harry came up into the DJ booth with like his MIBs, 
Like, but he's got like two MIBs with him. Yeah. And then, like, all you can see is like these MIBs just dotted around the club. And you know, obviously, you know, they're either just about to start busting into YMCA or they're proper <laughs> people. Do you know what I mean? Because, you know, you're seeing a dude in a suit and he's got sunglasses on or whatever else in the middle of it, you know, in the middle of the club. But yeah, I remember him coming up and, um, uh, Harry just asked me to play at the time. It was, uh, she wants to move, you know, by NERD. Yeah. The one what Alicia was in the video doing her thing or whatever. Yeah. He loved that song. And, um, I remember him just asking me to play that man. I'm thinking, how so real is this? Like Harry's asking me to play like Pharrell's song, man. Like, <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, like it's been some, some crazy, crazy parties. And then, of course, going on from the parties is that then going on from the parties, then DJing for and supporting the likes of 50 Cent in concert, you know, to be able to be in my hometown of London and do the O2 arena, 60,000 people in your hometown. And people already know who you are because you're already at that level now. So people come in and supporting you and you're there supporting 50 cent and it's like you've come a long way from sending people cds from- oh man you know what it was like come a long way from sending cds from people in your bedroom you come a long way do you know the one thing about you when i've kind of really thought about it that kind of blow my mind a little bit is there are so many djs who have djed in clubs or in resorts, or Marbella, Ibiza, wherever. But I don't think anybody else has grown a personal DJ brand like you have. What would, like, if somebody was to say to you, not, I want to be a DJ, what advice would you give me? But if I'm an up-and-coming DJ, mm-hmm. and I just want to build a brand, yeah. like a little bit like you've built yours, what kind of advice would you give them? You know, that's, that's a really good question. And I always would say, from the very outset of you starting your DJ career always look at yourself and your name as a brand so represent yourself in the same way that you want your brand to be represented have to keep a level of professionalism Uh, take your craft serious do you know what I mean and what you put out is what you get back you know and that kind of that kind of energy, what you put out there, you know, when, when I looked at myself in terms of wanting to make Colin Francis a, a brand, so to speak, and make it a name is that the kind of forefathers, what I looked at is Trevor Nelson, the name, when you heard the name, it meant something. Yeah. When you heard the name Westwood, it meant something. When you heard the name Carl Cox, it meant something. And I just knew that for what I was doing and in my lane, for what I suppose is known as the open format DJ, I knew I wanted to try and make myself that guy in that scene. I think you've done that, Colin. I hope so, Nick. And it means a lot to some man and, you know, hear someone like yourself say who has been around and seen so much and so many DJs and is so heavily involved in, again, in, in one of the you know, biggest brands was out there right now is that, you know, it's the, 
it's all about the way you carry yourself and the way you represent yourself on and off the decks because it's not just about what you do on the decks it's about what you do off the decks as well and how you are with people last one a little bit of fun really but if you could form yourself in the past yeah and speak to that Uh younger colin who would maybe go and stand in the dj booth and just watch that craft and try and learn Uh and you'll give him the some advice now based on all you know what would you say to him you know what i would say be very patient be very meticulous with listening to people which you respect and people what are doing it learn from other people's experience listen to other people's experiences listen to those who's gone before you and take it on board like you know when you're when you're not working which still be doing your research still be doing your homework go and listen pay your money or whatever it is to go and hear the DJs what you respect and watch the way how they play watch the way how they work the crowd and then go home practice your own style take bits of this take bits of that and make it your own you never know when your day might come when your break might come or when somebody says you know what that DJ I'd like to turn around and give him a chance because that's what I got and then when you do get the opportunity seize it and that confidence of saying when my time comes I'll be ready Colin when your time came you certainly were and you have been an absolute delight (laughs) thank you you so much I have genuinely never heard someone talk with so much passion and that you can almost taste it how much you genuinely love this and it's amazing to hear Nick it's been a pleasure That was the journey of the absolute gentleman that is Colin Francis. We're going to keep our fingers and toes crossed that we can still head to Marbella at some point this summer. But whatever happens, Colin's Ministry of Sound Marbella Sessions album is available to download now. And we're going to put the link in the show notes below. As always, we'll be back next week with another guest. Again, I don't know who that is because people who are more important decide that than me. But in the meantime, you can always tune into Candy Pants Radio. Just search Candy Pants wherever you listen to your podcasts and there is a new show every single Thursday. But until then, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you all very soon.